Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, verse 24 to 31, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, The Humiliation of Jesus. When Paul wrote about the sufferings of Jesus, he said that though he was in the form of God, and yet he made himself nothing. And then he adds that he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Two phrases catch my attention. The first is that he made himself nothing, and the second is that he humbled himself to such an extent that he went to the cross. That is to say, the extent of his humbling or the extent of his humiliation was as far as it was possible. Let's try an illustration. We all know that it's difficult for any of us to step down. I mean, imagine your paycheck going down. It's, it's difficult to go from an upper middle class salary to a lower middle class salary. That would include making adjustments in the way you live. You'd buy groceries with a great deal more care. The more expensive food items are now left off your list. You don't go out to a restaurant anymore. And if you did, you went out to a diner and not a high-class establishment. The car you drive is now more likely to be an economy car rather than the car you're presently driving. Your clothing choices have to change. See, a great many people, if that's what's happened to them, find the adjustment very difficult. It's far easier to step up than it is to step down. The old adage that, you know, no one minds being a servant until people start treating you that way. That's true. You know, if people once hushed their voices as you walked by and now, through a change in your circumstances, they ask you to clean up after them, many of us find that a crushing experience. But Jesus gave himself willingly to such humiliation. He had already spent his time praying, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And when we come to our passage today, we will observe how Jesus is humiliated first before Pilate, and next before the crowd who rejected him utterly, and then finally before the Roman soldiers. In each case, the humiliation is different, but in each case we see the Son of God stooping to a level we would not have imagined possible. So let's start with Pilate. I'm reading Matthew 27, verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. See, Pilate has gambled and he's lost. I mean, he could see that Jesus was innocent of the charges the Jewish leaders were making. And furthermore, his wife had had a dream in which, even though he had wanted to interpret it differently, well, the meaning must have been plain. He was to have no part in allowing this man to go to his death. He was to use his authority to judge and do the right thing. But he was concerned about himself. He was afraid for his position. He feared the possibility of reprisals from Rome. If the religious leaders of Israel complained and misrepresented what was going on in Jerusalem, well, so much could happen, so much pressure, and such a disturbing dream from his wife. In everything, Pilate simply wanted out of the Jesus problem. Giving the crowd the choice between Jesus and Barabbas couldn't have turned out to be worse. Many Bible scholars have puzzled over how it could have been that Mere days earlier, the crowds had been so enthused about Jesus, and now they turn on him. I mean, what's the explanation for that? And the most common explanation is that the crowd that welcomed him on Palm Sunday and the crowd that screamed for his crucifixion on Friday were two very different crowds. 
Indeed, that's a very possible explanation. I mean, of course, it was the Galilean Jews who cheered him on on Palm Sunday. And given it was still very early on Friday, you know, the crowd that showed up in front of Pilate's residence, well, they might well have all been Jerusalem Jews. So the Galilean Jews, no doubt, had to find accommodation in other places, maybe even outside the city. They might not have been aware of what was going on. So in a sense, this crowd was what we might call today a rent-a-crowd phenomenon, always available to protest something, always available to make trouble. And of course, because the gospel writers don't tell us, it's not possible to be certain about these things. I mean, I would imagine there were plenty of Galilean Jews renting rooms in Jerusalem, as well as those, like Jesus and his disciples, finding lodging outside the city. So for that reason, I don't think that we can separate out two different crowds entirely. It's also likely that the forces that opposed Jesus were intimidated when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. But now that she was on the other foot, buoyed by the leadership of the chief priests and elders, the opposition to Jesus reached its climax. And now it was his supporters who found himself intimidated into silence as loud cries demanded crucifixion. So at any rate, Pilate himself is surprised. And so he has to make a choice. He can call the Roman soldiers and gain order over the crowd. I mean, after all, the place is dangerously near a riot. It's out of control. But instead, he chooses to make a public scene. He will put water into wash basin and he'll wash his hands. I am innocent of this, he says. Is he really innocent? I mean, the answer must be an overwhelming no. He, after all, is the Roman governor. He's the legal judge of these proceedings. He has the power to clear the crowd. He has the power to petition Rome and plead for his side of things. But he chooses to take the easy way out. I'm innocent, he says. You're going to take responsibility for this. See, in this way, if Pilate had cast a glance at Jesus, the Son of God, he would have said, I choose the safe route for myself rather than concerning myself with justice for you. He humiliates Jesus by saying, in effect, you're not worth the effort. In effect, he judges Jesus as an unimportant person, and he judges his own life free of troubles as worth far more. And then that's the point we must consider. Pilate, although he occupies a unique place in history, also symbolically represents so many of us. Jesus comes to us. He bids us deny ourselves, pick up our cross, follow him. Self-denial. See, a great many reject Jesus, not because they've considered his truth claims and found them wanting, but because Jesus asks us to leave our life of perceived certainty and cast ourselves totally upon him. See, Pilate's the example of those who prefer self over righteousness and over the Son of God. Next, we go to the crowds. Remember, Pilate has just declared he's innocent of the blood of this man. I, I wash my hands of this stuff. So I'm reading now Matthew 27, 25 to 26. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. A great many people have strongly criticized Matthew for this section. Indeed, we do know that throughout the Middle Ages, the persecution that was directed at the Jewish people was often justified by this verse. Didn't they say, his blood be on us and on our children? Well, very well then, said the very wicked people in the Middle Ages, let's give them what they asked for. You know, recently for recreation, I was reading an Israeli spy novel in which the author makes much of this verse and how Christians have persecuted Jews on the basis of what he called a bogus historical claim. 
And a great many liberal scholars also argue that since Matthew is the only one of the four gospel writers to mention this, well, it must have been fabricated. So, for instance, Beer says, It's appalling for a Christian to think of how much suffering has been afflicted upon the Jews throughout the ages, partly as a result of this completely fictitious scene. I respond in this way. All four gospel writers mention some incidents that others do not mention. Are we then going to discount all material of this kind? That seems to be a very sloppy way to do historical research. Indeed, I would argue that the only reason this passage is denied today is because it's profoundly unpopular for us to remember it. Indeed, let's remember the context. Pilate said, I'm not responsible for the death of Jesus. And the crowd, inspired by by satanic madness, cries out, we're happy to take responsibility for the death of Jesus. Indeed, let our children after us also take responsibility. We're convinced that this crucifixion is a matter of little concern. God won't care about it if he's crucified. We're happy to take any consequences, for if there are consequences, they're going to be light ones indeed. You see how humiliated Jesus, the Son of God, is. So much so that a great company of the people in Jerusalem said, we'll take a curse for crucifying him. That curse is a small thing. So stop and consider what has been said. We do know that the idea of generational solidarity, that's found in the Old Testament. Numbers 14, verse 18. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. So there are those who argue that the Jewish rejection of the gospel and Jesus as their Messiah is being worked out today by this curse. That makes no sense, however, to me. Numbers 14, verse 18, even if it were strictly applied, can't refer to all Jews since all the Jews were certainly not in the crowd on that day. Indeed, since the matter happened earlier in the day, I think it's quite safe to say that the majority of Israel was unaware of what was happening. And furthermore, Numbers 14, 18 is about idolatry. The passage says, if you allow idols to infect your land, future generations will grow up in idolatry doesn't say that if the father curses God, his ancestors are held guilty. Last month, our friends at InDoubt launched the InDoubt Show with host Andrew Marcus, and it hit the ground running. The show kicked off with Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld and included a segment called Dangerous Doctrines, where Dr. John and Andrew confront and unpack, unravel, shed light on some of the crooked theological thinking out there today. The In Doubt Show also recently featured a conversation with a co-creator of one of the most popular current Christian dramatic series, The Chosen. Just a few of the great selection of guests so far and many more to come. So stay tuned for new engaging conversations with Christian experts and leaders ready to speak into the relevant issues of life, faith, and culture young adults are facing today. The In Doubt Show, online at indoubt.ca or at the In Doubt YouTube channel. And be sure to subscribe so never to miss a new episode. What do we make of the crowd that says, His blood be on us and our children? To that, we need to go to the prophet Ezekiel. Here I'm reading Ezekiel 18, 1 to 4. 
The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father, as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul whose sins shall die. Hope you hear that. The soul whose sins shall die. You know, I make something of this really for two reasons. The first is to discount the idea of generational curses. You know, I once attended a seminar on sexual purity, something that should have been a really good thing. But during the seminar, the speaker made the outrageous claim that the reason some men lusted was because their fathers had lusted. I mean, the same was said to be the case for those men who had committed adultery. Now, with all the error, there was an ounce of truth, of course. I mean, first, we have inherited our father Adam's sin, and second, it is also true that some men were raised in homes where all manner of sexual uncleanness was common, and they simply adopted a lifestyle they had received from their fathers. But the rest of the stuff, the speaker said, was pure myth. If your father sins in a given way, you're not cursed spiritually because of it. This idea that you're guilty of your father's sin, that's not biblical. God may determine not to rescue a culture from a sin that's deeply embedded into that culture so it gets repeated generation after generation. But I hope you heard the prophet Ezekiel stop saying the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. It's not true. Instead, everyone will be judged for their own sins. Don't you blame your father and don't you play victim to your father's sins, period. Take responsibility for your own sin. Repent before God you seek his favor. And so to the frenzied crowd that screamed, his blood be upon us and on our children. Now, did that happen? Well, I suppose in one sense it did. It created an attitude in a culture from the followers of religious leaders. It led to generations of rejecting of Jesus. Yeah. However, it's not true that the children of the ones who screamed for Jesus' crucifixion are held responsible for the sins of their parents. And it's also not true that contemporary Jews today are responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus any more than any other person is responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. There simply is no room in this passage for the persecution of Jews or, for that matter, any form of anti-Semitism. But let's get back to the people who were screaming for his blood to be on their own heads. Let's not let them off easily. Not long after the resurrection of Jesus came the day of Pentecost, and on that day, Peter got up to preach. Acts 2.23 records very impassioned words. This Jesus, Peter's preaching, this Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter's calling for them to repent. They participated in the act. Indeed, Peter mentions this not once but twice. Look again at Acts 2.36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Yeah, Peter will not allow for the crowd that's hearing him to walk away from this. You crucified Jesus, he said, and you need to repent. There were some in that crowd, no doubt, who had been a part of the crowd that screamed for Jesus' crucifixion. Their guilt remained unless they repented. Very good. We, we've seen Jesus humiliated first before Pilate, then before a group of people in Israel who said, we will reject Jesus and will condemn him. We don't need him to be our savior. Now comes the final humiliation before the cross. And here I'm reading Matthew 27, 27 to 31. 
Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Now let's remember that Jesus had already been scourged once. Verse 26 says, And having scourged Jesus, they delivered him to be crucified. That's the second time. The scourge, the whip. Well, it would have had a short wooden handle, sometimes wrapped in leather. And the actual whip had several strands. Each strand would have had braided into the leather, pieces of leather, brass, or bits of bone. And then two men would be employed, each with a whip, one whipping, and then the next whipping, and then back and forth. And with each blow, bits of flesh would have torn from the back. The scourging was cruel. It was showing no mercy. Many a victim died under that process and never made it to the cross. And furthermore, the blood loss might have also resulted in death. The fact that Jesus was able to carry his own cross for a distance, well, that's a testimony to his strength. It must have been considerable. A lot has been written about crucifixion, none of the least of it being that there has never been a form of death penalty so designed with cruelty in view. The Romans were an interesting culture. You know, on the one hand, we have still left over to this day, you know, the genius of Roman culture in the form of buildings and aqueducts that still stand along with Roman roads. And furthermore, Roman military discipline on the battlefield, including the courage of fighting man, that was legendary. But there was a cruel and savage underbelly to Rome. And the very fact they arranged games for the killing of one man over another tells us of a culture that had lost all sense of the value of human life. The Roman soldiers who oversaw crucifixion, well, you know, it takes no imagination to to think of them as men who had lost all sensitivity, cruel men who had become deeply twisted. These were men who were not only charged with executing victims, but making sport of them, robbing them of every last ounce of human decency. These were men who delighted in being as cruel and as savage as men can be, twisted killers whose joy was killing. You know, most scholars think that these soldiers were most likely recruited from Syria. They knew the Aramaic language, and they must have thought that Jesus had claimed a royal throne. So Matthew tells us that the soldiers charged with whipping, their first act was to strip him of his clothing, and then, if this were not humiliating enough, they would whip him. Now that they were done, instead of sensing a modicum of pity, they would mock him. They put a scarlet robe on him, clothing him as a king. And then someone has an idea. They'll make a crown for him, and somewhere in the vicinity, they must have found some thorns. There are in that area a great many very prickly plants covered with thorns. They quickly make a reef and smash it down on his head, driving the thorns into his skull. And then they find a stick and demand he take it. There, crown, scepter, robe, all of that. A man whose back is lacerated, barely able to stand, covered in blood. To these men, that's funny. Cruelty and torture, that's their delight. You know, some people have wondered if Pilate ordered that, and the answer is, he most certainly did not. This was all done by men who saw Jesus as a joke, someone whom they would delight in torturing. What would Pilate have done if he had been told? Well, the answer is, he'd have done nothing. After all, he's already washed his hands of the matter. He didn't want to know. In his mind, he was innocent. He had done nothing. He bears no guilt. It's nothing to him. Still, the cruelty isn't done. The soldiers, the one who tortured him, now kneel before him. Hail, King of the Jews. That's another joke. 
They'll have a drink that evening and they'll enjoy a good laugh on that sad creature. And after the game of mocking is over, they strip him of the robe and put his own clothes back on him. Must have been very painful. And only then are they ready to lead him to be crucified. You know, the world has always had sadists and men who love cruelty and even those who are sexually excited by torture. We've heard of serial killers, and sometimes in armies around the world in the fog of war, soldiers delight in torturing and raping, all in a frenzy. These are the kind of men that handle Jesus before they led him off to be crucified. Pilate has washed his hands, the crowd in Jerusalem has demanded it, and these soldiers have pleasured themselves in this cruelty. I come back to the words of Paul. Jesus made himself nothing, said Paul. The eternal Son of God, the one whose glory fills heaven and earth, was so debased, we wouldn't treat an animal with such contempt. He was despised and rejected, says the prophet Isaiah. It's hard for us to comprehend. There is not one bit of dignity left to Jesus. Isaiah said he was like one from whom men hide their faces. He was a grotesque horror. Is this not a picture of our own sin? Should we ever get used to the fact that the human race so despised God and that God so loved us that he sent his son to pay for our sin? Oh, what humiliation, but oh, what divine love. In the cross, we see both the love of God and we see also the indignity of our own sin. And we see the extent that Jesus went so that forgiveness might be given. Let's never see what Christ offers us as a usual or normal thing. Let's see it for what it is, a most holy and wondrous gift. Thanks for the message, John. The death of Jesus, it's horrifying when we consider all the details of what took place, but isn't it enough just to know that it did take place? Or is there significance in considering the specific details? Yeah, I think there is uh, great significance, both the physical suffering of Jesus as well as suffering under the hand of the anger of God for the sins of the world. Uh, We ought to consider the sufferings of Jesus because as we consider them, out of those sufferings we get a picture of Christ's amazing love for us and also what it took to buy our own salvation. So, you know, I, I think it's very helpful for us to consider these. It will cause us to understand our faith. Thanks so much, John, and remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Have you ever been too timid to share the good news of Jesus Christ? It's a common concern and a very old obstacle. The reasons for our caution and reticence are varied. We don't want to face a negative response or we don't know how to answer people's questions or rebuttals. Our fear can become so large it swallows our voice. We all need help in speaking our faith. Well, this month, Back to the Bible Canada offers a free book by Matt Smethurst called Before You Share Your Faith. It's not about an evangelism method. It speaks to our motives and our fears. It it addresses our concerns and offers practical help. So to request your free copy, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Let it encourage you to share the good news of Jesus. 
And please consider offering a financial gift to support the ministry this month.